Book Three, Chapter Four of Amelia, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malone. Amelia by Henry Fielding. A Sea Piece. The next day we joined the regiment which was soon after to embark. Nothing but mirth and jollity were in the countenance of every officer and soldier, and as I now met several friends whom I had not seen for above a year before, I passed several happy hours, in which poor Amelia's image seldom obtruded itself to interrupt my pleasure. To confess the truth, dear Miss Matthews, the tenderest of passions is capable of subsiding, nor is absence from our dearest friends so unsupportable as it may at first appear. Distance of time and place do really cure what they seem to aggravate, and taking leave of our friends resembles taking leave of the world, concerning which it hath been often said that it is not death but dying which is terrible. Here Miss Matthews burst into a fit of laughter, and cried, I sincerely ask your pardon, but I cannot help laughing at the gravity of your philosophy. Booth answered that the doctrine of the passions had been always his favorite study, and he was convinced every man acted entirely from that passion which was uppermost. Can I then think, said he, without entertaining the utmost contempt for myself, that any pleasure upon earth could drive the thoughts of Amelia one instant from my mind? At length we embarked aboard a transport, and sailed for Gibraltar. But the wind, which was at first fair, soon chopped about, so that we were obliged for several days to beat to windward as the sea phrase is. During this time the taste which I had of a seafaring life did not appear extremely agreeable. We rolled up and down in a little narrow cabin, in which were three officers, all of us extremely seasick. Our sickness, being much aggravated by the motion of the ship, by the view of each other, and by the stench of the men, but this was but a little taste indeed of the misery which was to follow, for we were got about six leagues to the westward of Scilly, when a violent storm arose at northeast, which soon raised the waves to the height of mountains. The horror of this is not to be adequately described to those who have never seen the like. The storm began in the evening, and as the clouds brought on the night apace, it was soon entirely dark. Nor had we, during many hours, any other light than that which was caused by the jarring elements, which frequently sent forth flashes, or rather streams of fire. And whilst these presented the most dreadful objects to our eyes, the roaring of the winds, the dashing of the waves against the ship and each other, formed a sound altogether as horrible for our ears, while our ship, sometimes lifted up as it were 
to the skies, and sometimes swept away at once, as into the lowest abyss, seemed to be the sport of the winds and seas. The captain himself almost gave up all for loss, and expressed his apprehension of being inevitably cast on the rocks of Scilly, and beat to pieces. And now, while some on board were addressing themselves to the supreme being, and others applying for comfort to strong liquors, my whole thoughts were entirely engaged by my Amelia. A thousand tender ideas crowded into my mind. I can truly say that I had not a single consideration about myself in which she was not concerned. Dying to me was leaving her, and the fear of never seeing her more was a dagger stuck in my heart. Again, all the terrors with which this storm, if it reached her ears, must fill her gentle mind on my account, and the agonies which she must undergo when she heard of my fate, gave me such intolerable pangs that I now repented my resolution and wished, I own I wished, that I had taken her advice and preferred love in a cottage to all the dazzling charms of honor. While I was tormenting myself with those meditations, and had concluded myself as certainly lost, the master came into the cabin, and with a cheerful voice assured us that we had escaped the danger, and that we had certainly passed to westward of the rock. This was comfortable news to all present, and my captain, who had been some time on his knees, leapt suddenly up, and testified his joy with a great oath. A person unused to the sea would have been astonished at the satisfaction which now discovered itself in the master or in any on board, for the storm still raged with great violence, and the daylight, which now appeared, presented us with sights of horror sufficient to terrify minds which were not absolute slaves to the passion of fear. But so great is the force of habit that what inspires a landsman with the highest apprehension of danger gives not the least concern to a sailor, to whom rocks and quicksands are almost the only objects of terror. The master, however, was a little mistaken in the present instance, for he had not left the cabin above an hour before my man came running to me and acquainted me that the ship was half full of water, that the sailors were going to hoist out the boat and save themselves, and begged me to come that moment along with him as I tendered my preservation. With this account, which was conveyed to me in a whisper, I acquainted both the captain and ensign, and we all together immediately mounted the deck, where we found the master making use of all his oratory, to persuade the sailors that the ship was in no danger, and at the same time employing all his authority to set the pumps a-going, which he assured them would keep the water under and save his dear lovely Peggy, for that was the name of the ship, which he swore he loved as dearly as his own soul. 
Indeed, this sufficiently appeared, for the leak was so great, and the water flowed in so plentifully, that his lovely Peggy was half filled before he could be brought to think of quitting her. But now the boat was brought alongside the ship, and the master himself, notwithstanding all his love for her, quitted his ship, and leapt into the boat. Every man present attempted to follow his example. When I heard the voice of my servant roaring forth my name in a kind of agony, I made directly to the ship-side, but was too late, for the boat, being already overladen, put directly off. And now, madam, I am going to relate to you an instance of heroic affection in a poor fellow towards his master, to which love itself, even among persons of superior education, can produce but few similar instances. My poor man, being unable to get me with him into the boat, leapt suddenly into the sea, and swam back to the ship, and when I gently rebuked him for his rashness, he answered, he chose rather to die with me than to carry the account of my death to my Amelia. At the same time, bursting into a flood of tears, he cried, Good heavens, what will that poor lady feel when she hears of this? This tender concern for my dear love endeared the poor fellow more to me than the gallant instances which he had just before given of his affection towards myself. And now, madam, my eyes were shocked with a sight, the horror of which can scarce be imagined for the boat had scarce got four hundred yards from the ship when it was swallowed up by the merciless waves, which now ran so high that out of the number of persons which were in the boat none recovered the ship, though many of them we saw miserably perish before our eyes, some of them very near us, without any possibility of giving them the least assistance. But Whatever we felt for them, we felt, I believe, more for ourselves, expecting every minute when we should share the same fate. Amongst the rest, one of our officers appeared quite stupefied with fear. I never indeed saw a more miserable example of the great power of that passion. I must not, however, omit doing him justice, by saying that I afterwards saw the same man behave well in an engagement in which he was wounded, though there, likewise, he was said to have betrayed the same passion of fear in his countenance. The other of our officers was no less stupefied, if I may so express myself, with foolhardiness, and seemed almost insensible of his danger. To say the truth, I have, from this and some other instances which I have seen, been almost inclined to think that the courage as well as cowardice of fools proceeds from not knowing what is or what is not the proper object of fear. Indeed, we may account for the, the extreme hardiness of some men in the same manner as for the terrors of children at a bugbear. The child knows not but that the bugbear is the proper object of fear, but the blockhead knows not that a cannon-ball is so. 
As to the remaining part of the ship's crew and the soldiers, most of them were dead drunk, and the rest were endeavoring, as fast as they could, to prepare for death in the same manner. In this dreadful situation, we were taught that no human condition should inspire men with absolute despair, for as the storm had ceased for some time, the swelling of the sea began considerably to abate, and we now perceived the man-of-war which convoyed us at no great distance astern. Those aboard her easily perceived our distress and made towards us. When they came pretty near, they hoisted out two boats to our assistance. These no sooner approached the ship than they were instantaneously filled, and I myself got a place in one of them, chiefly by the aid of my honest servant, of whose fidelity to me on all occasions I cannot speak or think too highly. Indeed, I got into the boat so much the more easily as a great number on board the ship were rendered by drink incapable of taking any care for themselves. There was time, however, for the boat to pass and repass, so that when we came to call over names, three only of all that remained in the ship after the loss of her own boat were missing. The captain, ensign, and myself were received with many congratulations by our officers on board the man-of-war. The sea officers, too, all except the captain, paid us their compliments, though these were of the rougher kind, and not without several jokes on our escape. As for the captain himself, we scarce saw him during the many hours, and when he appeared he presented a view of majesty beyond any that I had ever seen. The dignity which he preserved did indeed give me rather the idea of a mogul or a Turkish emperor than of any of the monarchs of Christendom. To say the truth, I could resemble his walk on the deck to nothing but the image of Captain Gulliver strutting among the Lilliputians. He seemed to think himself a being of an order superior to all around him, and more especially to us of the land service. Nay, such was the behavior of all the sea officers and sailors to us and our soldiers, that instead of appearing to be subjects of the same prince, engaged in one quarrel, and joined to support one cause, we landmen rather seemed to be captives on board an enemy's vessel. This is a grievous misfortune, and often proves so fatal to the service, that it is great pity some means could not be found of curing it. Here Mr. Booth stopped a while to take breath. We will, therefore, give the same refreshment to the reader. End of section 23 Reading by Malone